Good morning, this is Peter Lewis, welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk for the final time this week. It's Friday the 22nd of September. There are several places you can find this show. Look for Peter Lewis's Money Talk on Spotify, Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts, where we're one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and Singapore. You can go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll also find my daily newsletter. On Facebook, I'm Peter Lewis Money Talk, and on Twitter, at MoneyTalkR3. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, in a surprise move, UK interest rates have been left unchanged after the Bank of England said price rises were slowing faster than expected. Interest rates were held at a 15-year high of 5.25% after 14 rate rises in a row. In a knife-edge vote, the bank's monetary policy committee was split 5-4 to four in favour of leaving rates unchanged, with Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey casting the final and decisive vote. It comes after figures on Wednesday revealed an unexpected slowdown in inflation in August. The bank said there were also increasing signs that higher rates were starting to hurt the UK economy. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority maintained its base rate at 5.75% Thursday after the US Federal Reserve kept rates on hold for the second time this year. The HKMA said it was premature to conclude whether the US rate hike cycle has been completed and the high interest rate environment is likely to last for some time. In an escalating dispute between India and Canada, India has suspended visa services for Canadian citizens amid a row over the killing of a Sikh separatist on Canadian soil. On Wednesday, India warned its citizens and students contemplating travelling Canada to exercise utmost caution because of growing anti-India activities and criminal violence in the country. The number of Americans filing for unemployment benefits, which is considered a proxy for layoffs, fell by 20,000 to 201,000 in the week ending September the 16th. That's the lowest since late January and well below market expectations of 225,000. Meanwhile, continuing claims fell by 21,000 to a new eight-month low of 1.66 million in the previous week indicating the unemployed are having an easier time finding new work. A resilient labour market and the potential flow-on impacts on inflation could prompt the Fed to leave rates higher for longer. On today's programme, I'm joined by David Friedland, Managing Director of Asia-Pacific at Interactive Brokers, and Andrew Sullivan, founder of Asian Market Sense. With a view from Australia is Toby Lawson, CEO at Staten Partners. On Wall Street, all three major U.S. indices fell sharply on Thursday in a third day of declines as Treasury yields hit 16-year highs. The S&P 500 slid 1.6% to a three-month low of 4,330. The Dow dropped 370 points, or 1.1%, to close at 34,070. Rate-sensitive tech shares were under pressure as Treasury yields moved higher. The Nasdaq Composite Index dropped 1.8%, touching a five-week low of 13,224. U.S. Treasury yields rose Tuesday after a hawkish FOMC increased investors' fears that interest rates will stay higher for longer to combat persistent inflation. The yield on the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury hit a new 16-year high, rising eight basis points to 4.49%. 
that took yields to their highest level since October 2007. Longer-dated U.S. Treasuries also sold off, with the yield on the 30-year bond rising 15 basis points to 4.57%. That's the highest since April 2011. And the two-year yield touched a high of 5.2%, reaching levels not seen since July 2006, before retreating later in the session to 5.15%. The yield on 10-year Japanese government bonds rose to its highest level in a decade. Ahead of the Bank of Japan's monetary policy decision today, the 10-year JGB yield rose to 0.75% on Thursday. The dollar index, which tracks the buck against a basket of six peers, hit a six-month high earlier in the day before falling back to be flat at 105.39%. The offshore yuan fell for the fourth day in a row, even as the PBOC set the daily reference rates for the currency at the strongest deviation from market estimates in history on Thursday. The yuan weakened as much as a third of a percent in onshore and offshore markets, and it was trading at 7.3064 renminbi in Shanghai. Stocks in Hong Kong tumbled to a four-week low. The Hang Seng Index declined for the second straight session, losing 230 points, or 1.3%, to 17,655. That's the lowest since August the 21st. All major sectors were in the red. And the latest fall takes the decline in the city's benchmark index so far in 2023 to 10.8%, making it the worst performer out of 92 equity indices around the world, tracked by Bloomberg. And it's not going to get any better this morning because futures markets are pointing to another decline of about 120 points for the Hang Seng at the open. That's a fall of about 0.7%. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our Friday morning guests. Well, we have with us Andrew Sullivan, who is founder of Asian Market Sense. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us, David Friedland, who's managing director for Asia Pacific at Interactive Brokers. Good to see you again, David. Nice to see you too. Uh, Let's start in the UK. Uh, In a surprise move, UK interest rates have been left unchanged after the Bank of England said price rises were slowing faster than expected. They were held at a 15-year high of 5.25% after 14 rate rises in a row. It was a knife-edge vote. The Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee was split 5-4 to in favour of leaving rates unchanged. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey cast the final and decisive vote. And that comes after figures on Wednesday revealed an unexpected slowdown in inflation in August. Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey said inflation has fallen a lot in recent months and we think it will continue to do so. And the bank said there were also increasing signs that higher rates were starting to hurt the UK economy and the majority backing the decision to hold indicated that further rate rises were unlikely to be necessary in the coming months. They voted. uh, They wrote that the current level of rates be maintained rather than increased until progress has been made in bringing inflation down to the Bank of England's 2% target. Andrew and David, help me understand this. Here we have the Fed, very decisive, saying rates have got to go up further um, because inflation is still too high. In the UK, where inflation is more than double what we're seeing in the US, the Bank of England's leaving rates on hold and saying they've gone high enough. They can't both be right, surely. Well, I think the, the the thing is they've been they've been behind the curve for a lot of this, uh, you know, probably the last year. To be honest, uh, they've been aggressive, and uh, I think that the like the Fed are just waiting to see whether these uh, these moves actually have a, a real implication to the what's happening in the economy. Mm. Yeah, I think some of it also is um, political pressure. 
end of the day, the housing market is the front, um, and the mortgage uh, costs is front front page news. So they're indicating that we're not going to raise rates. Well, they're they're going to kind of help the housing market, which is getting devastated. Um, otherwise, um, this is a wait and see approach. I think you're right there because I mean one of the key things in the UK is the fact that most of these are aren't on fixed rate mortgages. Mm. You know they're on floating rates. So when when these have a real impact quite quickly, probably two or three months from a, a rate change to people's spending patterns. Yeah, and I think hopefully it's psychologically they're saying, look, inflation's getting under control. I think for the first time in a while we'll see markets really taking a hit. So psychologically there'll be less money out there and hope maybe control for inflation a little bit. But the Bank of England can't seriously think inflation's under control, can they, in the UK? I mean, they got excited because food price inflation has declined from 15% year-on-year to 14% year-on-year. It, it's sort of hardly a signal that inflation is, is under control, really, is it? Well, I think they're doing all they can. Um, it, it's, yeah. Inflation is always a very difficult thing to control. I mean, it, you're always on the back foot. So, uh, you know, they're doing the best they can. They've been aggressive. They were, they, you know, they were behind the curve to start with. They came up to the curve, I think. And, and now they really want to see whether they're uh, the implications of what they're doing. Mm. There's a difference, isn't there? A difference in focus now between the Fed and the Bank of England. The Fed seems to be focusing more on inflation than on the economy, whereas the Bank of England seems to be focusing more on the economy now than on uh, than on inflation. Well, I think you have the tale of two different worlds. Uh, the U.S. economy has done fairly well. The market's been re- resilient and strong this year. Mm-hmm. Um, earnings numbers have been decent, and employment is is still very tight. No. In the U.K., the sentiment is... is bit on the opposite side where um, especially food inflation and the cost of electricity have been really hit the economy and hit the people uh, and the general populace quite hard. So I think you have to manage all that. And I think the other thing you have to remember is that a lot of the mortgages in the US are 30-year mortgages. So once people have locked in, you know, they're not going to move, whereas in the UK they're floating rates. So two or three months down the line, this you know, an in, you know, interest rate change makes an effect. Mm. Yeah, absolutely right. It's a direct hit on the pocketbook right away. Mm. You, you've been in Europe, actually, haven't you, recently, um, David? Are, are people noticing price rises? Or is it something that they're talking about? Yeah, and, and um, it is. It's actually hitting the, the, the um, restaurant sector quite heavily. We, we were, um, you know, it's one small antidote. We were in a restaurant in a small town, and it was doing very well. It was packed. And then we're talking to, to, the, to the, um, the owner on the way out, and she was telling us how hard it is right now, and they're suffering, and they're barely uh, making it because of, they're trying to keep prices down while their costs have gone up, especially labor costs and, and, and of course, the food side. Mm. And I'm sorry, and on top of that, they said electricity. That's right. a massive hit for them this year. Well, I mean, that, that's the key thing for Europe, isn't it? I mean, it's gone from cheap Russian you know, energy to realistic pricing. And now we have oil prices moving up, so maybe um, you know we're going to start seeing the inflationary impact of that as well now as energy prices start to, to creep back up because it looks like oil is going to $100 a barrel, doesn't it? And particularly after the news today with Russia uh, restricting diesel supplies as well now. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be an interesting couple of months coming up, especially as we head into winter. Yeah, mm. but I mean, I think Europe has actually tried to wean itself off the cheap you know, Russian or, uh, energy pricing but uh, as you say i mean it's a, it's a key element to everybody's pocketbook mm. 
I, I find it hard, though, to imagine that the Bank of England is right when it says there's no need for any more rate rises. And they seem to be saying, you know, the most we need to do now is maintain them at current levels, not raise them. Whereas the Fed is saying quite clearly there will probably have to be more rate rises. But I, I struggle to think that the, the, the Bank of England can be right on that, surely. Well, I think one of the things is actually we, we haven't really seen the big impact of AI yet. And, you know, a lot of these big firms, they're not employing people, they're doing contracting. Because why would you employ an accountant when you might be able to replace him for $25,000 or whatever with an AI program? And and I don't think we've actually really taken that on board yet, that, you know, it, it's going to be a very radical change in the next six to nine months. Mm. There's been a lot of central bank activity in the last 24 hours, as well as the Bank of England. We had Switzerland surprise markets. They left rates on hold. Norway and Sweden and Turkey all raised them in Europe. Here in Asia, Taiwan, Indonesia and the Philippines left them on hold. The HKMA also, no surprise, of course, they have to maintain their base rate at five and three quarter percent uh, now. But what do you see the impact being here, particularly on the on the housing markets? Because the economy is slowing, isn't it? Rates are, um, rates are pretty high. We've got GDP now at about one and a half percent year on year in the second quarter. What's the impact going to be here? Well, I think Hong Kong is in for a tough ride. Um, you know, the antidote is, well, it's, it's no secret. How many people in Hong Kong are, I want to say, fleeing, going on the short train to China over the weekend and, and, and spending there because it's so much cheaper. Um, I, I was talking restaurants uh, to one of my colleagues in the office, and they said, that why would they spend money here when it's half the price or even a third of the price if they just go across the border to eat? No, I think the other thing is you look at the last land auction, you know, yeah, a lot of the companies put in, in bids, but they were very, very bearish. And actually, I mean, Sino won, but Sino's known to be having a very small land bank, so it had to pay up. Mm. It's. I thought the most interesting thing about that was the fact that Chung Kong, that had a site very adjacent to that one, didn't pay up, even though the price was probably a third less than they'd paid 18 months ago. Yeah, but there's a lot of land supply coming on in Hong Kong and office space. I'm sorry, yeah. office space coming on Hong Kong, and that's going to be interesting because you have... Um, you have three major projects in Central. You have a whole bunch down in Taikusheng and Quarry Bay. It's um, going to push prices down. And you look at the new Henderson building. Yeah, lovely building, a green building. And then you've got Chung Kong's replacement of Bank of America Tower, which we don't know whether it's that compliant. And what do you reckon about uh, the government's bid to try and boost the night economy? Night vibes, I think it's called, isn't it? Which seems to be focused very much on domestic people living here, not on tourists at all. Um, is this going to persuade people not to go to Shenzhen for the weekend and spend their money there? Unless they cut the prices down, I don't see it uh, doing the job. Um, it's just PR. Well, I think the other thing is, is at the end of the day, if it's not locally driven, if there's no demand for it, if the government is putting demand in place, it's unlikely to be successful. Mm. You cannot force tourism at the end of the day. I mean, and, and this is the problem we've had. You know, the government shut down over COVID. You know, we lost a lot of the airline routes and you know, people have gone elsewhere. And they quite like the idea now of going elsewhere as well, realising it's very convenient to travel to Shenzhen for the weekend, even fly to Japan for a few days and have a break there. Well, I think the interesting thing was Cathay's numbers came out, I think, on Tuesday. They were quite good numbers, but the stock ended up lower on the day, which just tells you that there's a lot of pressure on that sector. Mm -hmm. Interesting, but you know, Hong Kong over the last, you know, since COVID and, and the, the changes in the economy and in the politics, lost a lot of... Um, 
when it ever says expats, it's not just Western expats. It's expats. And, it's and, momentum. And it's total, exactly. And the schools are suffering. There's less children around. There's less spending in general. And that has to change. And that's only going to change if the economy picks up and firms can need the talent and pay up to bring it in. But if it's so expensive to bring people in, you're competing mm. against China, you're competing against other markets. It's going to take time. It's not going to be an overnight fix. I think the other thing is, you know, the Greater Bear area, I mean, I used to work for Haitong. It's like, there is no low-hanging fruit there. You know, as ever, China has said, we're opening this up. But it's only opening up after 20 years of actually having it opened up for the local firms. You know, they're hoping that Hong Kong will spur that market. But the reality is Hong Kong has always been about taking China to the world, not taking China to China. Okay, well, we've got another central bank meeting today. The Bank of Japan, they're going to conclude their two-day monetary policy meeting. Going to be keenly watched for any sign that the BOJ is going to start the retreat from ultra-loose interest rates. I suppose, um, Andrew, if they do signal they're going to retreat, then we're going to see a massive move in the markets. But uh, unlikely, isn't it? Well, I think they've already positioned themselves for that, to be honest. You know, they said they're going to do it. I mean, I think the, the, the best thing the Bank of Japan said was, you know, when the new governor took over, he said he was going to give himself 18 months, so nobody could front-run him. He's given himself 18 months to change policy. He will do it in his own time. Yeah, I, I kind of laugh a little bit. I wonder why they even meet, because you know what <laughs> going to happen. Um, That's a good point. At, at some point. It's the only though, way they get paid. Yeah. But at some point, something has to change there. It, it's... You can't fight negative rates against the rest of the world at 5 6 7%. Well, I think the other thing is, though, as well, you know, Japan has never needed low interest rates. I mean, companies are not desperate for cash. The, the real crux of this is the fact that the CEOs do not borrow money unless they think they can make money. It doesn't matter how cheap you make it. Unless they can make money, they're not going to borrow money. And, and, that's been, and, and the only thing it's really hit is, you, know, you go back 15, 20 years, Japanese tourists used to be the best people in the world. Because they were getting five, six percent, and they knew they could. Today, you know, they're hiding behind their savings and hope they 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 survive. Mm. Do you think we could see a change in the yield curve control policy either at today's meeting or before the end of the year? Well, I think everybody hopes that Corroda, now that he's on a pension, might have a change of opinion. <laughs> yeah, but he can't do anything about it now, can he? He had his chance, and and he didn't change. Mm. What do you make of what the Fed did and said on uh, on Thursday? The key thing seems to be the dot plots, doesn't it? That's where uh, people were most, fo- most focused on. And what was absolutely clear is that uh, policymakers on the Fed are, are revising up their outlook for interest rates and also cutting um, the, the number of rate cuts uh, that they think there's going to be next year. They were originally projecting four. Now they're saying only two uh, rate cuts next year. I'm wondering if that might actually get to zero before, uh, before two long well i think the key thing here is at the beginning of the year everybody was fighting the fed everybody thought that no they'll cut early whatever and powell has consistently said no we are going to keep rates high we're going to keep them higher for longer but nobody believed him and he's just gone again it's like no there are going to be no rate cuts we haven't got inflation under control and until we do nothing's going to change i think you bring up a good point um it's taken him a very long time to gain credibility and now that he has it, I think he, 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 he can say something and he can move the markets very slowly, very tightly, but he bought himself some time by saying, yeah, we, we may make cuts, we may not. Well, I think the other thing as well is, I mean, they've got a very strong labor market. I mean, even though we've got these, um, you know, these strikes in the auto industry, but I think the key thing here is, you know, 
AI is making a difference. You know, people aren't quitting jobs because they're worried. You know, you can't get cheap auditors because there are AI programs that will replace them. And, and a lot of these people are realising that their jobs aren't safe. Mm, but it's not being reflected in the unemployment data, is it? The unemployment data still shows that, uh, you know, people, um, you know, claims for benefits are, are falling, falling a lot more than, than people thought, which tends to suggest they have confidence that if they do get unemployed, they, they're going to find another job. But I think you have to look at where the unemployment is. I mean, you aren't getting auditors lining up for jobs anymore. Mm-hmm. And this is something that AI can replace very quickly. You know, you can get an AI program that's equivalent to a McKinsey accountant, whatever. It's it's in you know, and and the creative people, you know, you know, you, we've still got this strike in the in the actors' union because they realise that their th- jobs are under threat. Mm. So it seems that the, the, Jerome Powell has, has put himself in quite a nice position because he's got everyone thinking that there's going to be another rate rise before the end of the year. So he's now put himself in the position to surprise everyone by not doing it, hasn't he, by, by the end of the year, um, as opposed to the other way round, which is where the Bank of England is in, where they've let everyone think there won't be any more rate rises and they could end up disappointing. I, I think you're right. I think he's, he's finally got to the point where he keeps the markets guessing and therefore he has more power. Yeah, mm. he, he, they were behind the curve and they've got ahead of it. Mm. Well, the, the big reaction um, has come in the markets, of course. We've seen um, the 10-year the bond yield now um, at a 16-year high. In fact, let me just... Um, let me just get the data for all of those, um, all of those bond yields out there. The six, the ten year, right here we go. The two year yields highest since July two thousand and six. Five year yields highest since August two thousand and seven. Ten year highest since November two thousand and seven. The thirty year highest since April two thousand and eleven. I mean, we're looking at historic moves here, aren't we? In the bond markets, this is just not the sort of um, things that you see. Four hundred basis point rate uh, increase in ten year yield over three years i mean these are extraordinary moves which presumably are going to have consequences i think they will but are we moving back to the norm i mean we had 10 15 years of historically low rates basically no rates at all and um it's about i mean it's a realization you have massive debt out there how are you going to finance it the long-term rates are here to stay i think is what the market is finally realizing or recognizing well, we've never unwound qe i mean when it first came in it was a great idea but you know everybody's kicked the can down the road for effectively 15 years and now somebody's got to pay the piper mm. and you've got mortgage rates now in the US above 8% new car loan rates are nearing 10% that's a, a record this is going to have impacts isn't it on the US i mean you're not going to sell your home now are you because there's no way if you've got a, a mortgage at sort of 3% you're going to want to refinance um at 8% so presumably this is going to knock um housing market activity right on the head well, we've already seen that, I think. And I mean, I think you're right, yeah. And, and the US is one of the few places that you can lock in a 30-year mortgage. I mean, mm. it, it does mean for people like, you know, um, the, the, the house builders, it's only new supply. You've got the people that are, you know, supplying them with air conditioners and uh, people like Tektronix that are, you know, the people will be refurbishing, not not moving. But I think you've also got to take into account that, you know, new purchases are just not going to happen. You know, mm. people are going to go, the ladder is too high. This is, uh, I'm wondering if, um, you know, these high yields, they're a bigger problem for people outside the US than maybe they are in the, in the US because it, it's driving the dollar um, higher. Um, it's making the cost of uh, borrowing um, pretty high, isn't it, in, in, pl- in other places um, around the world? 
Yeah, well, definitely there is a ripple effect um, elsewhere, particularly Hong Kong, but we're, we're feeling it here. Mm. Um, and it will impact global markets, and everyone has to f basically chase and follow it. But, um, you know, there's, you know, at some point you have to deal with the debt, you have to deal with all the systemic problems, and housing will come to a head. Um, you know, the rental market is obviously doing phenomenal because people are renting, but... You know, the whole economy has changed so much. You work from home. In the city. Do you go to the offices anymore? Real estate's going to be, um, office real estate's going to be massively uh, impacted, probably more so than it is now with AI coming. Um, you know, I, I don't know if any of you have been to offices in the States or in, in Europe or even Hong Kong. Yeah, you, there's maybe half the people in the office, if you're lucky. Other mm -hmm. offices, basically one or two people come in on a Friday. So the, the world's changed, and where are people living, where are they staying? It's still evolving. And what's the impact going to be on U.S. stocks of this? So they're, they're, we're starting to see it already, aren't we? We're seeing a rotation now out of the tech stocks, which are pretty uh, pretty um, hit by uh, by higher interest rates, moving into more defensives. Utilities have been outperforming now. Is that going to be uh, the trend for the final quarter of the year, do you think? Well, I don't think people have really taken on AI yet. I mean, you know, you look at a lot of these stats about employment. I mean, people aren't employing new accountants because they know that they can get an AI program to replace them. So there, there's a lot of contracting work going on. Uh, and that means that a lot of these companies are going to still come out with good results because they're going to save on cost. They're going to use AI. They're going to use computer power. Um, it, it's, it, you know, it's a change. So would you still buy these chip companies like NVIDIA that are you know, up what, about 180% at one point this year, weren't they? I think they're still up, not quite as much as that. But Well, you look at it. I mean, you know, Meta came into it late. Uh, but realistically, I think you've got to look at, you know, Huawei have just come out with a new chip that they've managed to reconstruct the, the technology. The, the, the key thing for this is actually, you know, NVIDIA is, is expensive now. But mm. we, you know, you look at the use of these, you know, modern chips. They are a huge drain on power. So yeah, you buy the the power companies, you buy the memory companies, you buy, you know, still you buy resources because people are going to have to transfer energy from solar or from wind or from the sea. Um, there, there's a radical change taking place. Yeah, and at the same point, demand still going to increase in tech because you have to. It's more effective pay paying for a computer and computer chips and all the peripheral devices than hiring a person, ultimately. Mm. Well, you're not going to buy, you know, you're not going to hire a McKenzie analyst at 150000 a month, a year, sorry, and when you can buy it from a, download it for $25 a month. Mm. Let me finally get your thoughts on local markets here in Hong Kong. The Hang Seng's tumbled now to a four-week uh, low. Uh, it declined for the second straight session, lost 230 points. Currently, it's 17,655. The decline now for 2023, almost 11%. It's the worst performer out of any major equity index market in the world, about 92 of them, which are tracked by uh, Bloomberg. Um, what, what are your thoughts, first of all, on what's gone wrong for Hong Kong? And do you see any sort of ray of light at the end of the tunnel for the final quarter of the year? Well, I mean, the, the Hang Seng and... and the Hong Kong markets in general are heavily dependent on China, and the China economy has been, been a rough ride. And the, um, a lot of Chinese companies listed in Hong Kong, and the earnings are dependent on China. So as long as the China economy is, is in a little bit of a doldrum, Hong Kong is going to suffer. 
I mean, I think it's quite interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, you go back 10 years, we had, you know, China Mobile, the property companies, the telecom companies, and, and, and the H, you know, the, the, the stock exchange decided that yeah, they wanted to be more tech. <laughs> and that's been a really bad decision at the end of the day. I mean, the property company, Southern Kai's price, if you look at it, hasn't changed very much after the last 20 years. It still pays a good dividend. It's still a, a diversified conglomerate. But it's, you know, it's not the weight that it had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the thing for Hong Kong at the end of the day, you know, you go back you know, 15 years, everybody knew there was a, a, a premium for the risk in China. But it was only when they changed policy on Macau, on education, on e-commerce, that people actually realized that that premium was there for a reason. And the confidence has gone. People have been burnt. You know, you look at the, the volume every day. We're now at, what, 70 billion a day. We used to be at 150. That is because people were burnt and they've gone away. And they're not going to come back until they get certainty that... And this is the lovely thing about China. They've always said, look, we don't make mistakes. We don't have the problem with, uh, with uh, elections. So we have... Concern. But they suddenly changed their mind. And that shocked the market. And a lot of people shocked, hurt, lost money. And they can make money at 5% just with treasury bonds in the US. Yeah, I think as long as interest rates are high, you're going to be... Do you keep your money in Hong Kong or do you move it to dollars? It's, we're, we're pegged to the dollar. Why, why not get 5 Mm. Well, what's interesting is foreigners. I mean, they sold in August 90 billion yuan worth of stock through Stock Connect. They already sold, that was a record, already sold 24 billion yuan so far uh, this month. Presumably, the foreigners who are now heavily overweight, they're not seeing enough yet to, to make them want to come back despite the cheap valuations, I presume. The Hang Seng Index is trading now uh, at about eight times price to earnings, 8.4 times forward price to earnings. Pretty cheap, but not enough to tempt people back. Well, no, but I, mean, I, mean, I think you have to look at things. You know, Harway is a great company, but it's not listed. Mm. You know, they, they have managed to get around the, the, the sanctions in the US and, and come up with a, you know, a comparable chip. Even though the you know the technology is is you know skewed you know, against them, and I think that's the interesting thing. You know, people say that China is uninvestable. It's not. You just have to find sectors that are very much in line with what the government wants to do, and you know they're going to be backed. So electric vehicles and and the like. Well, yeah. I mean, look at it. You know, they've taken over you know the internet of everything. You know, they, they put more patents out there. Huawei has done that. Even though the U.S. sanctioned it, you know, to the hind teeth, it has succeeded in, in being there and, and, and setting the specifications. U- U.S. firms, if you remember, you know, when, when we came in with, you know, 4G, 5G, China came up with its own one and it didn't work. What it realized is actually you have to be in the specification side so that everybody has to follow your lead. That's what they've done. They've done that with batteries. They've done that with EVs. They did that with solar. Mm-hmm. And, and they will focus on doing that again. Yeah, and at and, and end of the day, it's a buyer. It's a picker, stock picker's market. So you've got to be selective in what you do. The real estate's going to be suffering for a bit. But there are, there's well, going to... For, for my kids' education. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for a long time. And then... But yeah, but, but the select, as you said, the select tech stocks out there, some great finance companies, um, but the valuations have been very high for a while and it, it's put them back in line. Now you have to go pick the right stocks. I think the other thing is you're talking about valuations there and, and tech stocks. I mean, Alibaba, Tencent, they were world leaders, but the government decided that actually ethics were more important than profit. 
and, and that's what Xi Jinping has done. He, he's, he's changed the market around, and unless you're in line with what he thinks, you're not going to make money. Yeah, and then you bring one you know, very good point is, you, you have a company, you, you invest in it, you do all the research, and if the rules change, you have, there's a risk premium. There's, a so, there's so much uncertainty. Why would you put your money in, in, in a certain stock if you're not sure what the rules will be down the line? And if the goalposts keep changing, go to something more stable and... and, and well, I mean, in the U.S., it will take five years to change policy. You know, you have to mm. go through committees and everything else. In China, we've woken up to the fact that actually if Xi Jinping gets out of the left side of the bed, everything can change overnight. Sure. And, and that's a worry. Yeah, and then, and of course, you have the, the geopolitical mess that's going on right now. And it, it's well, you can't get the information. Yeah. So, mm. you know, how, how can you invest if you don't know what the, the, the ground rules are? What do you make of uh, this information from the Hang Seng Index's company about stock buybacks? They've reached um, uh, 11.9 billion US dollars this year. That's four times higher than the prior five-year annual average. They've already reached 73.5 billion Hong Kong dollars up until September the 15th, which is about 70% of last year's total. Now, buybacks can sometimes signal, can't they, that corporate directors think the shares in their companies um, are cheap. Do, do you put much store by this uh, by this news? I, I've never, I've never understood stock buybacks, frankly, because if you have, unless you basically signal to the market, you have all this cash, you don't know what to do it, you don't know how to put it R and D, you don't, you can't invest it. You can't, exactly. So, mm. so why not either give it back as a dividend, which would be the same effective thing as buying the stock. Mm. Um, so I, I think it's a negative signal personally, but. It's, you know, it's, the think, mindset here is buy, buy, because our stock is low. We're going back up. But I think you, you look at the companies that are doing it. It's, you know, Tencent's buying back. The banks are buying back. Uh, Metuan's been buying back. Yeah. Stocks that are under pressure are buying back because they are actually cheap. And as you say, they've got this cash and they have no idea what else to do with it. So why not buy your own stock? And I think the other thing is actually a lot of the directors, their compensation is linked to what happens with the share price. So if you've got spare cash on the balance sheet, why not use it to, to help yourself? And you can also be big at building up some treasury stock to get the staff as compensation down the line as well. But it's, I, I just think it's better. It's not invested in R&D. So these guys are not investing in their future at the end of the day. Exactly. Okay, well, thank you very much for your thoughts this morning. Have a great weekend. You heard there David Friedland, who's Managing Director for Asia Pacific at Interactive Brokers. Andrew Sullivan, who is founder of Asian Market Sense. I'm joined now by Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. Morning, Toby. Yeah, good morning, Peter. A lot of action in the last 24 hours from central banks um, all over the world. In Europe, we had the Bank of England and Switzerland leave rates on hold. Uh, Norway and Sweden raise them. Here in Asia, Taiwan, uh, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, Indonesia, Philippines left rates on hold. The Bank of Japan is meeting today, also expected to leave rates on hold. Let me start, Toby, with um, the Bank of England. They left surprisingly, maybe, uh, there, left interest rates on hold at five and a quarter percent. That brings an end to sort of 14 rate rises in a row. It was a very close decision. The Monetary Policy Committee was split five to four, um, and Andrew Bailey had to cast the final and decisive vote to decide to keep things uh, on hold. And he focused on um, inflation. He said inflation has fallen a lot in recent months. 
Um, what I'm struggling to understand here is the difference between what the Bank of England has done and what the Fed has done. The Fed has made it very clear rates are here to, are going to go up. Inflation's still too high. In the UK, inflation is more than double what it is in the US, but they're saying rates are now on hold. Doesn't seem to make sense, does it? One of them seems to me is going to be wrong. <laughs> um, yeah, well, firstly, I think it was rather a line ball decision whether to tighten again. Uh, they've increased interest rates in the UK by 515 basis points in the last two years. Um, they had a double-digit inflation, which has come down to a six-handle. So uh, in line with some of the other central banks, I feel like now's the time for a pause. I don't think it's the end necessarily. So you can differentiate that from the Fed, which is a little further along in terms of the trajectory of rates. So the UK's now sort of where the Fed were a few months ago saying, right, we're in a chance for a pause, whereas the Fed have sort of kept their language fairly hawkish. And this is, you know, we discussed this previously. You know, the central bank wants to keep a foot on inflation. It doesn't want to create any expectation that they're comfortable with inflation in the forehand or they need to get it back to two. So hence the language this week of the Fed was really about saying, hey, we've got another one in the pipe if we're not seeing um, you know, further decline in, in uh, inflation, which you have seen obviously in the US, but it's starting to slow. Um, and so on that basis, I think uh, the Fed have you know, had a clear delineation from what the Bank of England have, which are sort of now into that phase where they're into the pause, which doesn't necessarily change the direction of interest rates in the UK, but probably gives them a little bit of breathing space. The, the five MPCM members who voted for the, uh, the, the pause said the current level of rates can be maintained rather than increased. It's hard to imagine that the Bank of England is going to be right there, is it? That there's not going to be any more rate rises in the UK. I struggle to think with inflation, uh, what, 6.3%, food inflation, um, almost 14%, that there's not going to be any more rate rises. Yeah, rule rates are five and a quarter. So similar to where the US rates are in short end. Um, so yeah, I think if inflation can persi- persist in that in that six area for sure, you're going to see higher rates. And clearly, if uh, ECB and uh, who are around four uh, percent, and then US go say five and a quarter to five and a half, then yeah, you would definitely price in another one in the UK potentially more. So I think that's a reasonable thesis. Um, but you know what's most interesting now is you know some of the data starting to emerge out of the US. Even with the Fed saying that GDP will be better than expected, you know, we're starting to see some figures that are reflecting the impact of the higher interest rates, you know, home sales, uh, you know, Fed activity starting to, you know, impinge a little bit. Mm, but then you get other data, like the unemployment data that we had overnight, which suggests sort of that things are still looking pretty good. I mean, it still looks like it's a pretty tight labour market, doesn't it? Yeah, that's been a bit of a conundrum, you know, for for central banks and for most of the Western economies uh, post-COVID is the tightness of the labour market has persisted despite a very aggressive tightening schedule. You would expect, um, not just in theory, but in practice, that you would see a, a bigger decrease in employment uh, through the cycle. Um And it just hasn't happened uh, as expected. So you're right, it's the tight labour markets has probably got most central banks, you know, concerned. And actually, when we talk about tight labour markets, what they're concerned about, and I think we've used this before, is is not the actual amount of labour, but the productivity of labour uh, in this recovery out of COVID is not the same. So that also adds to cost, which means inflation can be persistent, even when you're seeing um, some slowdown in the supply chain, inflation, the cost push stuff.
Mm. I mean, what the Fed has done this year, it's been one of two things, hasn't it? They've either raised rates or they've kept them on hold, which they've done twice now. But it's been a very hawkish hold. They've said, even though we're on hold, more is coming. I uh, don't think this is uh, this is the end. What does it mean now for uh, the Bank of Japan, who are, who are meeting today? Um, they've got a pretty tricky decision to make, haven't they? Yeah, I think the forecast is for them to, to stay the course. Uh, what are they, point one? They're not likely to move, but they're... Uh, they've got a uh, a yen at 148 plus, I think, in terms of its uh, depreciation against the dollar. So it's possible that they might look to to intervene by raising uh, either rates or at least an expectation of rates to try to respond to that. Um, different dynamics in in the Japanese economy. Um, mm. They have a history of being in such a deep deflation that they're very very reluctant um, to 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 avoid tightening things up. You know, they want to give as much chance for velocity to come into the economy. So um, I suspect they'll probably be on hold again, but let's see what the language is around, what they do. Um, and, yeah, they're probably, if they're looking to see, uh, to put some yen strength in, they may look to, to tighten or at least change the language a little bit. And this is the problem for them, isn't it? It's the yen, which is sliding quite rapidly towards 150. Um, and although they talk about intervening, they haven't done so so far this year. But presumably this is where the Fed is putting pressure on Japan through the, through the currency and the stronger dollar. Mm. Yeah, and the, the problem when you start um, trying to um, tell the market about your currency expectation, the market sort of tends to push you the other way. Mm. Um, so, you know, jawboning a stronger yen isn't going to work. It'll have to be policy decision that'll drive the market to, to reprice the yen. So at this stage, yeah, uh, I, even talking about uh, trying to get a stronger yen or intervening in terms of open market operations or whatever to try to defend the currency isn't going to work. Um, it actually ends up often having a, an inverse effect because the market starts to see a bit of panic, starts to push the uh, push the central bank authority. So I'm inclined to think that they, if they're really concerned and they want to do something about it, they'll probably raise rates. Mm. But I think the forecast in the market is for them to hold it again. And the People's Bank of China is in the same boat, presumably, in that it also wants mm. to stem the decline in the yuan. It certainly can't raise rates with the state of the economy, so it's down to jawboning or the fixing uh, to try and push get push against it. Well, China can can intervene from a fixed perspective. It's not a floating market essentially, even if they try to uh, to do so. So they have the capacity to intervene in terms of where they are in the cycle. Um, they're into a bit of a deflationary cycle, but they have more capacity to intervene. And politically, they have more capacity to intervene. So uh, we'll be interested to see what PBOC do, because that'll be driven uh, as much by what the politics are required in the domestic economy in China. Mm. Let me ask you about the market reaction to all of this this week. The key thing is really in the Treasury market, isn't it, with Treasury yields, just to put some context around it. Two-year yields are now at their highest since July 2006. Five-year yields at the highest since August 2007. The 10-year, the highest since November 2007. And the 30-year at the highest since April 2011. These are sort of historic moves that we're seeing in the bond markets at the moment, aren't they? Yeah, and you're seeing the curve steepen, um, which is an interesting shift. So even though we're seeing higher short rates, uh, the, the long bond is starting to to move up and that is the more significant aspect when it comes to pricing equities and uh, and ultimately most debt 
right? So the 10-year is the one. So the 10-year, the curve steepening, 16-year highs, as you mentioned, are 4.5% in the, in the US. Um, and if you want to look at a flow-through effect on how market sees that, not only have you seen interest rate-sensitive stocks in the growth sector like the NASDAQ dropping quite sharply, but volatility rose 15% overnight. And I think it's a clear reflection of the breakup in bond yields. Um, and that's something we'll keep an eye on because vol's been... Uh, you know, down to you know, thirteen uh, percent now. Back over fifteen percent overnight. That was a uh, mm-hmm. sorry over seventeen percent overnight. A fifteen percent move. So um, yeah, clearly a technical break on bonds. Um, and as the ten year is the one to watch because that will be reflected in earnings yield and therefore equity prices. And you've seen overnight in the last couple of days equity starting to move um, quite sharply lower, particularly uh, on the growth side. I'm wondering, this has consequences, doesn't it? This sharp rise in yields, both domestically in the US and also overseas as well. I mean, domestically, mortgage rates are at 8% now, car loan rates are at 10%. This is going to have a big impact on people refinancing. They're just simply not going to consider selling their homes, for example, if uh, you've got a mortgage currently at around 3%, only to then end up with a mortgage at 8%. So home sales uh, were down again, 0.7, third month in a row. Uh, in the US, home sales are down. Um, mortgages are fixed at the 30-year, pretty much. So in terms of the impact on the borrower, um, uh, whilst their terms are long, uh, rates are fixed, uh, you know, that type of stress um, necessarily won't be a dislocation. Here in Australia, it's a bit different. Of course, you have a lot of variable uh, mortgages and then you have fixed mortgages coming off after short periods of fix. And uh, the, the repricing of those has been a huge amount of refinancing of loans, people trying to extend terms, uh, mm-hmm. duration in particular. So that activity is on and going here in Australia. We really notice it, um, but hasn't necessarily fed through to prices coming down. Um, and, uh, you know, different dynamics at play in Australia, of course. But, yeah, I think it's it's clearly some of the stress that you would expect from the interest rate rises we've seen in the last 18 months should be starting to feed through and maybe we're starting to see the signs of it. Mm. And and the other way it's having an impact on overseas markets is through the dollar as well and on overseas investors, the dollar strengthening, um, which is impacting borrowing costs well, all over the world really, isn't it? That's right. And and so those, you know, the, those uh, parameters start to shift and, you know, you start to really feel it. Uh, uh, that lag effect uh, of the higher interest rates and the curve flat, uh, the curve going inverse are now starting to play out, which is actually in line with the expected timetable of, of, of potential recession, mm-hmm. 18 months to two years from the inversion. So, you know, people sort of look back and say, well, it's actually, you know, what's happening is not unreasonable given what, uh, you know, the timelines around inverted yield curves and changes in dynamics with higher interest rates. Let me ask you finally, switching topics, I want to ask you about India, this extraordinary dispute uh, between India and Canada, which almost seems to have come out of nowhere, doesn't it? But as a severely damaged uh, relations between the two countries, they're expelling diplomats. Um, India's no longer issuing visas for Canadians. Canadians are pulling out uh, people from uh, from India. They're talking about travel advisories. I mean, what on earth is, 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 is the impact of this going to be? Because this relationship is an important one, isn't it? Definitely important. I think it's the fourth largest. Canada is the fourth largest export of coal to to um, India. And actually, interesting. I was reading the Economic Times of India this morning, and one of uh, J, JSW Steel, one of the big steel companies in India, has slowed an acquisition of a coal company, Tech Resources, in the Canada. Maybe just a delay. Now, 
the way in which is not to overreact to these situations is I look at it, the Khashoggi uh, murder, um, you know, with Saudi that happened, you know, there was a major amount of dis- uh, disconnect with them from a geopolitical perspective, but, you know, sort of people have moved on from it, mm. even if there was condemnation. Less of a more dramatic one was the Australian-French um, submarine deal that went, um, uh, that uh, Australia walked away, of caused a major diplomatic incident. Australia and France are now back on track. Um I suspect that uh, there's a lot of noise, heavy rhetoric now, because India will want to clearly defend itself. Um, Canada, on the other hand, is doing what it should do, which is it has a criminal investigation going. It doesn't matter if they've got credible evidence that someone, you know, that there was evidence of involvement from another nation state, then, you know, they've got no choice but to investigate it. And I don't think the Canadians um, would ever abdicate that uh, responsibility. The rule of law applies. So it's messy it's concerning. I think it's way too early to suspect that it'll have long-term implications. But right now, it's a very, very tricky situation for both countries. Um, and what you would hope is that they let the investigation you know, happen and that the diplomatic um, fuel sort of dies down and they get back on track. But we'll wait and see. And presumably, this is sort of put on hold plans for a trade deal. They were talking about a trade pact by uh, by the end of the year. That got put on hold just before the G20 summit. Hopefully, that will get back on track. But for now, it, it seems to have been postponed. Yeah, and that's yeah. This is yeah. This will happen in when you have diplomatic uh, spats. I mean, it's a serious incident. If there was, regardless of the individual, regardless of what happened, if it's a Canadian citizen. Um, who was murdered on Canadian soil, and the investigators have evidence that it was potentially a foreign a nation involved. They have no choice but to, to raise it. And I think, you know, you've got to admire Canada's strength in this re- regard, regardless of the consequences of the relationship. We don't know. Let the investigation play out. Um, India is reacting as you would expect because, you know, they're obviously defending their, their sovereignty. But Let's see. I think, you know, sometimes these things have maximum noise early because there's a lot of attention to them. And then um, hopefully they can, you know, they can simmer down and they can get back on track. Okay, Toby. Well, it's good to get your perspective on that. Very level-headed perspective indeed. Thank you very much. That's Toby Lawson, who is the CEO of Staten Partners down in Sydney, Australia. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you very much for listening this morning and this week. Don't forget to take a look at my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll have more business and finance updates for you on Monday. Joining me then are Alex Wong, Director at Alex KY Wong Asset Management, and Tim Huxley, Chairman of Mandarin Shipping, providing a view on mainland China, will be China specialist and author Mark O'Neill. Have a great weekend. Money Talk.